You're listening to What's Wrong With This Picture? Freaky Films and Why We Frickin' Love Them. Hi, I'm Lindsay McCullough. And I'm Gary Mulholland. And in each episode of What's Wrong With This Picture, we'll be looking at a movie we think is weird and wonderful. We sometimes do include the endings where it's key to what the film is, so please be prepared for that. So anyway, buckle up and join us on a journey to dangerous cities, suburbia and other fantasy worlds. It's going to be a wild ride. This time we're talking about 1955 romantic drama All That Heaven Allows, uh, directed by Douglas Sirk, uh, a special mention for the cinematography of Russell Metty and starring Jane Wyman as Carrie Scott, Rock Hudson as Ron Kirby, Agnes Moorhead as Sarah, Gloria Talbot as Kay Scott, and William Reynolds as Ned Scott. Um, so, Lindsay, tell me a little bit about this film. So, uh, Carrie is a widow in suburban New England. She's got a big house. She's got nosy neighbours. She's got a circle of friends, all very kind of mid-50s Americana. She's got two college-age children, a son, Ned, and daughter, Kay, each more prissy than the last. Mm. Uh, they're very controlling about their, their mother. The whole film really is about the, the mores and the standards and the expectations of suburban America. Into this suburban uh, wonderland comes Ron Kirby, a gardener, Carrie's gardener, played, as you say, by Rock Hudson. He's younger, he's bigger, he's mm. musclier. <laughs> and unlike her suburban neighbours, Ron is anti-materialistic. He lives in the country. He's building his own cabin. He values nature above kind of material things. And his friends are bohemians. They, of course, fall in love across this culture divide to the chagrin, really, of Carrie's children, her friends and her neighbours. And Ron proposes and Carrie accepts. However, she's persuaded by her family and friends that she's making herself ridiculous. And of course, their real concern is that she's making them ridiculous. They feel she's attracted by his youth and physique and they are incredibly uh, disapproving of this match and very forthcoming in telling her so. So that's the first part of the plot. Gary, what's wrong with this picture? Yeah, what's wrong with this picture is that uh, it is very possibly the most subversive script uh, that came out of the mainstream of Hollywood in the 1950s. And uh, it basically, it managed to convince um, the people who put up the money for it and presumably most of its audience, because it was a very successful film, that it was a film about, you know, women, you know, it's a sad life, all love, all romance, all there's some difficulties to get over, when it is, in fact, a savage indictment of everything America was in the 1950s, <laughs> a savage indictment of straight sexuality, a savage indictment of children and having children and allowing them to control your life. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it is pretty much an attack on everything. And somehow, it's completely apparent to people twenty from about 30 years after the film was made, it started to become totally apparent to a whole new generation of filmmakers and film critics. But at the time, nobody realised it. Yeah, I was, I was reminded of, of um, we discussed here a, a Western called Johnny Guitar yeah. uh, in, in our podcast series. And 
there's a, a Martin Scorsese quote about that film, which is, it looked like a Western, but it only seemed like a Western. Yeah. And I would say about Douglas Sirk's films, they look like women's pictures, they look like melodramas, but as you say, they only they only look that way. Yeah. They're actually something much more coruscating, something much more abrasive, yeah. because the values that are so lovingly portrayed... And actually, the visuals in every Cirque film beautiful. Yes, the 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 rich, the rich, lush, vibrant colours, the affluence, the the nature, the how it how it looks, all of that just mm. serves to indicate what a kind of rotten heart there is. Uh, we can't go very far, I don't think, in talking about Douglas Cirque without bringing in things like Blue Velvet, which I'm sure we'll yes, talk about later absolutely. on, and, and the, the influence that this film had. But it's a, it's a similar kind of feel. It looks lovely, and there's a rotten heart beating beneath it. Absolutely, and I think um, uh, it, what's really why I sort of mentioned Russell Metty, uh, the cinematographer. It's not like I, you know, know loads about him or anything, mm. but all I know is if this film doesn't make suburbia look so gorgeous, Douglas Sirk doesn't get his ideas. Yeah, through. yeah. Um, and I think, and this is this is something I really want to talk to you about in terms of the weirdness of the film because I don't know if you'll agree. Um, I think everybody now knows, um, you know, anybody who's got a mild interest in film or Hollywood knows that uh, Rock Hudson was gay and that had, uh, you know, he died, unfortunately, of AIDS in the 1980s. Um, And a lot of his life, despite his massive success, and he was, you know, the biggest male box office star of the 1950s and continued to be pretty successful for a while. um, But... There was a misery underlying that, which was he covered up his sexuality for the for entirety mm. of his life until the very end when he couldn't hide it. Um, and this is because he had been absolutely hit with the idea that you cannot possibly be a mainstream leading man in Hollywood and be out and gay. You just can't. No. Women will not fancy you men will despise you you'll be cast out um uh, you know you won't you'll just be exiled you won't give them work um so he played the game and he did what he did and he covered up and he got married i think it was at least twice uh and attempt to cover up and on and on and on and i watch his character ron in um in this movie and i think douglas sirk and rock hudson colluded in order to put something close to the real Rock Hudson on the screen. Um, That yes, okay, the character is heterosexual um, because why would he want Jane Wyman otherwise? But he is a mixture of physical strength, uh, et cetera, et cetera, like you say, Mm -hmm. muscles, being able to build his own house, outdoors man, kind of new agey in his beliefs. Yeah, very, very. But sensitive, vulnerable, great listener. yeah. He actually understands her. He's her gay best friend. Yeah. <laughs> He's her gay best friend who also happens to, you know, be hot. Yeah. And um, and I think that that there was something there because they worked together quite a while, uh, quite a few times, Cirque and Hudson. And I think Cirque, um, I think Cirque wanted to put something of the real Rock Hudson on the screen. I think I think that's a very credible thesis, to be honest. As you say, they did work together a lot. They knew each other personally as as well as professionally. I'm not suggesting they had an affair. That's not at all what no, I'm suggesting. No. But they, 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 you know, I think they were friends in in real life as well. And it's, I, I think, as I say, yeah, that is just something I can absolutely get behind. What do you what, think? What do you think's the weirdest scene? Well, 
I mean, there's one very famous scene, which actually I'm going to leave to you to, to, okay. to talk about. The, the scene I want to talk about is when they are getting to know each other. Mm. Um, and they're, they're kind of officially an item. Yeah. And Rock's, Rock Hudson's friends, also bohemian, mm. are having a party. And so they go along to uh, this party. Now, we've seen the kind of life that Carrie's living in the suburbs. And you imagine that any party she goes to, it's evening gowns, Get it's fine china. There's somebody <laughs> kind of tinkling, tink, tink, tinkling away on the piano in the corner. Yeah. That was my impression of a piano. Yeah, that was nice. <laughs> <laughs> tinkly. <laughs> tinkly. Um, very kind of formal affairs, very mm. staid affairs. Mm. And in fact, um, that does happen in the, in, in the film where she's kind of introduced to someone that her family and friends feel is slightly the better match for her mm. as a widow, who's this older guy, easily maybe 10 or 20 years older than yeah. her, who says to her pretty explicitly, at our age, it's like cheek, because she is a lot yeah. younger than him, yeah. at our age, don't you feel that companionship is more important than anything else? I.e., I'm I impotent. Yeah. I can't get it out. <laughs> I'm impotent, and why would you want anything else? Yeah. And, and so, of course, faced with the kind of the rugged masculinity, the undoubted potency of, of Rock Hudson, Carrie's like, Actually, maybe there is something else for me. Yeah. So she goes. She goes to this this party, and this party is kind of uber bohemian. So there's kind of Chianti in 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 raffia bottles. There's um, there is somebody playing a piano, but they're playing a kind of bohemian polka yeah. uh, that people are <laughs> people are dancing to. This whole stream of people coming through the doors. There's artists. There's you know different people doing different things. And because Ron lives in the wood, there's a very kind of wooden aspect to everything. There are mm. trees everywhere. So in this in this party that they're at, there's loads of there's kind of bare wooden tables, there's bare wooden floorboards. At one point, uh, Ron is kind of tinkling away on the ivories himself, and he's singing this quite sexual song about how he looks at Carrie and she's kind of quite delighted by this yeah. and they dance but it's not a, a kind of formal twirl around the floor it really is kind of a, a, a polka stomp yeah. and this party is fun yeah. and this is what's missing in the suburbs this is what she doesn't have certainly not from her family she's having fun yeah. and at one point um, this artist comes through the door so she's getting in introduced to all these kind of people she's never met before creative people woodsy people yeah you know people yeah. from the wrong side of the tracks yeah and so she's introduced to this artist and he said and she kind of says to him oh, what, what kind of stuff do you do and he's like strictly primitive <laughs> and of course this is the complaint that her family have about ron yeah that he's, he's strictly, strictly primitive. primitive yeah so this party kind of reflects back to everything in the film about the the difference between carrie's world and ron's world and it's like can these crazy kids make it work not mm. according to her family and friends. Yeah. They've really got to fight against everything like that. And that fits into another scene, actually, doesn't yeah. it? Well, you contrast that with the party scene. The, the, mm. the, the, when she takes Rock Hudson, she tries to come out, with, right. basically, with Ron, with Ron and brings him to the party. And that party, on the surface, it's canapes and sophisticated music and everybody in nice suits mm -hmm. and nice dresses and all that but it's a seething underbelly of loathing somebody's trying to shag somebody else you know somebody makes a pass at yeah. her don't they yeah. one of our married, married, one of our friends. married yeah. friends makes a pass at her you know Rock Hudson punches him out you know it, it it's it's everything that other party isn't where that that's that party is free and everybody's treating each other with respect 
yeah. et cetera, et cetera. This party is full of nastiness and drunkenness and, you know, and sexual inappropriateness. And it's just horrible. And it, it, it's, it really is, you know, Douglas Hurt was a visionary. I, it, he, that party, I mean, he's seeing the 60s coming. Yeah. Very, very clearly. You know, Rock Hudson might not have long hair, but he's a hippie. Yeah. That's his values. Beatnik slash hippie. Yeah. And the contrast with middle American, materialist, white man, white heterosexual and particularly white male values is kind of like, I mean, that, it's awful. It's awful. You know, as far as Douglas Sirk concerned, this is hell. Yeah. And this is this is not limited to the older generation because her son, Ned, Carrie's son, Ned, oh, is possibly the worst character in the it. worst, the worst of them all. Do you want to talk about the the, the scene? The <laughs> there scene? is a there is a famous scene, the one that often does get shown on clip shows as an example of of both cinematic brilliance and cleverness, but also sign of the times. Um, what this film was saying. So basically, but you're going to have to give me some reminder because you know this film so much better than me. Is it her birthday? Uh, I think it's Christmas actually, it's Christmas. and she's she's broken up with Ron. Ron, yeah. So yeah. And there, there is a, there is a contrast between her son and her daughter. Um, her daughter is whiny and doesn't really get it, and and doesn't really and and also does not understand why you know she's into Ron, um, and is a bit selfish about it. However, she is prepared to listen to her mother and maybe kind of notice when she's upset, whereas the son, nothing like that. Mm. But they decide they brought her the greatest Christmas present in the world. <laughs> and she's like, oh, you know, because Jane Wyman's performance, by the way, it's just, yeah. it's, it's, you will die because it is, it's the epitome of, what's the word? Dignified suffering. Yeah. <laughs> she absolutely nails it. And she's sitting there. She almost knows that this Christmas present, like, you know, is going to be something that sucks. But she's like, oh, yes, mm-hmm, yeah, lovely. And what they do is they bring her in a television. And it's basically, and almost say straight off the cuff, this is where you can watch people live. Yeah. You don't have to do it. You could just sit on your and- seat and watch other people live. And, of course, the beauty of the shot is the television is switched on, the screen is put in front of her, and the camera turns to the screen, and what you see is the reflection of her, uh, just looking at this television with this look of horror. Um, and, and Ned pops the cherry on the cake by saying, this is all the company you'll ever need. That's the word, That's the line. This is all the company you'll ever need. It's, oh, man, it's a dagger in the heart. It really is a dagger in the heart. And there's this very Sirkian, as they call it, uh, uh, screens, Mirrors, screens, doorways, windows. There's always a separation between the character that we're rooting for and the life that's happening around them. So Carrie spends a lot of time kind of looking out the window from her suburban house into her suburban street. Of course, at the start, she's looking outside to watch Ron as he's kind of trimming. I don't want to say trimming her bush, but I fear I have said it. (laughs) Trimming her trees. (laughs) Please continue. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you can always count on me. But anyway, yes, so of, of course, she's looking through these circuit screens at life happening. Yeah. And this TV is just another one of these circuit screens. There's a, there's a bit um, earlier in the film where it's an in 
it's an internal door between two rooms, but it's it's kind of glass panels. Mm. And she's standing one side, and I think Ned or maybe her daughter is standing the other. And she said, I, you know, I, I don't want this to separate us. And it's mm. like something is absolutely separating you. you. Yeah, I, I, it's just genius. He's a, he's a great... Master of the visual cues. One of the ironies, I think, about um, Douglas Sirk, uh, again, is it, he he was credited uh, as the the father of what we came to know as soap opera, like modern soap opera. Um, if you The first massive soap opera of the 60s in America was Peyton Place, um, which was still being shown on television when me and you were growing up mm-hmm. in, in the UK. That's how big it was. Um, it produced some extraordinary stuff, like Ryan O'Neill started off in Peyton Place and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, Mia Farrow as well. I Mia think. Farrow, I think, as well, yeah. Um, it was a massive, massive show, and it was so completely based on you know, the mise-en-scene of, of Douglas Sirk um, in, in his big 50s melodramas. And um, and But it's so interesting that while the cinema or the television... So firstly... Douglas Sirk obviously had a problem with television, but guess what? He was really influential on one of the biggest aspects of television and not just that, the biggest aspects of this is all the company you'll ever need. Just sit and watch your soaps. Um, But while the 60s revolution was going on, you know, he he led to one of the most conservative parts of, of, you know, kind of American culture. Yet he plainly was like so anti-materialist and and so much stood for something else, and it just took an, an awful long time for for like I say, critics and directors and cinephiles, a new generation of people who watched those films, male and female, and went, "No, that's not what he's saying at all." Yeah, that is not. You're missing. How did you all miss it? Yeah, these are really subversive movies. Uh, yeah, unusually for us, for us, we're not saying he was big in France, but no. he was he was big with David Lynch. He was big with Tantino and Wong Kar Wai and yeah. Todd Todd Haynes. Yeah. So I, I I wonder if we should talk maybe about the kind of the modern the modern films that have been influenced by that. So definitely, Todd Haynes pretty much remade it as Far from, Far Heaven. from Heaven in two thousand and two, I think, with and Julianne Moore movie. and Dennis Haysbert. And in in this version, uh, the gardener is not just working class; he's also black. black yeah. Uh, which adds a, a, a adds a. I think that film is set in the fifties, and there's no way that would have flown. I don't think in nineteen fifty five Hollywood. No, no. I mean, as you know, Todd Haynes was very, very. There was completely open about it. He he loved he loved all that heaven allows, and he also loved um, Imitation of Life. Yeah. And he basically went right. I'm going to cross these two. Films. It's it's basically the story of all that heaven allows. But obviously, the thing with Imitation of Life, which. I got into the sight and sound top hundred. He is one of the hundred greatest movies ever made. Was the relationship between a white woman and a black woman, um, mm. sort of her servant, um, but that becomes a much more powerful relationship as it goes along. Um, and basically, he thought, right, no, let's go that step further. We've we've come on. We're in the eighty early nineties now. Um, let's make the Rock Hudson character black. Yeah, and it's a lovely film, and yeah. Julianne Moore smashes it out of the park. But, and, but she does, doesn't which she? Which is what she does. 
Um, and yeah, what what else? Um, what do you think? Well, Blue you Velvet. mentioned Blue Velvet. Yeah, yeah, obviously. And it's um, you know, I guess I guess David Lynch kind of takes that again one step further. So it's not just the 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 the, the horrific heart and decay underneath mm. suburbia. I mean, he makes that very kind of overt, right? Right mm. from right from the first scene, isn't it? Where yeah. There's a there's a flower, but there's a there's some kind of insect in it that's eating it. Yes, that's right. I, yeah, I can't yeah, remember yeah, exactly yeah. which the insect is, cat, yeah. caterpillar or something. So right from the start, he's saying this beautiful suburban garden has a darkness at its heart, and yes. of course. Uh, Dennis Hopper goes on to exemplify that. Yeah, he's a, he's a little a little more overstated in his performance, I feel, than Rock Hudson. Uh, just uh, just a tan, but you know, matter of matter of uh, subjectivity, I suppose. Yeah, but of course, I, I guess uh, it's Isabella Rossellini that's Rock Hudson in this one, and it's I guess, uh, yeah, in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What other movies do you think are particularly um, influential, or what other directors? Because I think Al Almodovar is yeah definitely you know his his mix of a kind of gay sensibility and very much a female sensitivity yeah. uh, sens- uh, sensibility i think is circian yeah yeah and very his his films are very female centric and there yeah. is that kind of the expectations that are that are placed on on women um and how they might how they might react to those i just i, I kind of want to go back to the daughter in this because i don't know yeah. if you remember that Kay. so um She's she's off. She's studying something. Maybe at school. Maybe at college. It's their ages. I think they're late teenagers, but yeah. it's kind of hard to tell because right. the actors are a bit older than that. But um, she's she's studying kind of Freudianism. Mm, that's right. Yes, of course. And so yeah, she's yeah, got yeah, all yeah. this theoretical knowledge about sex, which she regales her mother with. But she's got no practical knowledge or inclination at, at the start, certainly, towards the practical side of sex. So. She's telling her mother what's wrong with her and why she's why following these urges for the the kind of the primitive and the muscles exactly what kind of is wrong with her and why her why uh, you know why what her syndrome is but she's got no real realization at the start of the film that actually these are feelings it's not a yeah. sickness it's not an illness it's not a syndrome these are these are feelings and actually sexual feelings are as are as real as as love feelings towards the end of the film Kay starts to move towards her mother and starts listening because this is really key i think douglas sirk really gets something that women still talk about in 2023 people don't listen to me (laughs) and particularly men never listen Mm. to me what they do is hear the bare minimum of what i'm saying and then start mansplaining what i should do about it now please shut up and go away now that in 2023 is just as common as it was in 1955, and what Cirque sort of saying is, well, guess what? Women collude with that. So his, you know, her daughter is doing exactly the same thing. She keeps telling her mother. She never listens to her mother. She tells her what's wrong with her. She tells her what to think. She tells her what she believes she's smarter than her mother by a million miles. And but by the end of the film, she sees. She finally sees that her mother is in pain. And she starts to listen and she starts, Ned. No. No. And the, the thing is that Kay has fallen in love herself, isn't it? She's getting engaged. And so she's starting to move away from the theoretical Freudianism of, of sex towards a practical... Desire. Desire. Actual desire. And, 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 and starting to understand that. So, um, I mean, I guess just to, to go on with the plot. So mm, Carrie yes. is persuaded not to marry Ron. She's miserable. She gets her TV She's made this. She's made this sacrifice for her for her children for for their betterment, 
And then Ned says, well, I'm going off to college and Kay's getting married. So we might as well sell this big house that's and you can go... astonishing, isn't it? Go and, and do what you like. he absolutely believes, this kid believes that he's the man of the house. Yeah. And he can make that decision. It's nothing to do with his own mother. Yeah. It's just kind of like, was it this bad in the 50s in America? I don't know. Maybe yeah. it was. I, 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 I suspect it was. So, I mean, but at this stage, Carrie realises that her sacrifice has all been in vain for nothing, as they say yeah. in, uh, yeah. <laughs> in Singing in the Rain. And so she decides to reconnect with Ron. Mm. She goes out to the countryside where his cabin is. He's up on a mountain. He sees her. He's keen to see her. He's like, thank God she's come back. And he falls off the cliff. He does. He does. So the final scenes end up with Carrie. Kind of, they are reconciled, but who knows what kind of injuries he's sustained yeah. and what kind of life she's, she's facing forward. Is his masculinity, is his physique, is his primitiveness, is it all still intact? This is one of the things that um, Douglas Sirk, the labels were put on him, wasn't it? It was that he was king of the weepy. Yeah. And what people meant by the weepy is these are films that women went to to cry at the end and or cry all the way through. Um, so there was so that gave him the chance to to not resolve films with a lovely, happy ending where the romantic couple went skipping off into the, the, the woods and living happy ever after. But what it went was the other way round, which was she always, you know, the female protagonist always seemed to end up like at somebody's bedside, you know, <laughs> kind of going, don't worry, I'll sacrifice my entire life to, to nurse you through your paraplegia, you know, sort of thing or something. And um, oh, who was often Rock Hudson, and, yeah. um, uh, or it seemed. And... Um, so that is, yeah, that that's where we're going at the end of this film. There's an amazing last shot kind of, which is just sort of, he has had a way and again, you know, uh, big up to, to Russell Metty, I think it is. There was something about that last camera shot out the window, because mm -hmm. we've done a lot of mirrors and yeah. windows all the way through the film, that kind of says, life does not end happily. There are no happy ever afters. It just goes on and yeah. it goes on and you have to roll with the punches. And I don't know how you do that with a, a sweeping shot that goes towards a window. Yeah. But he did it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it, it's just wonderful. And I do cry at the end of, of the film. Yeah. I do. Um, uh, and, and it, but it's, it's not, it's not a, oh, you know, a woman's lot is not a happy one kind of crying. It, it's life's a struggle. Yeah. Crying and, and he's put it in such a poignant way. Yeah. And if you can find somebody and you can make it look beautiful, then yeah. then, why, then why not? I know we had a discussion about this that, uh, you know, other people who have seen this film are just like, it's a straightforward melodrama. Why, why mm, are yes. you, in, why are you insisting that it's, that it's weird? Yeah. So I guess my, my thought is I really get, you know, you can sit and you can watch it as a straightforward melodrama. You can sit and watch it as a soapy film. Mm -hmm. You can if you're really willing to turn very, very deliberately away from from all the unpleasant things that it is saying about white heterosexual mainstream life. Yeah. And suburbia and materialism. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, it could not be clearer that anything else is better than that. Yeah. Anything else is better than the emptiness of her of her suburban life and her suburban friends even, and it, her suburban would-be boyfriend who's too old to, to do anything. Yeah. Even the title is a sneer. Yeah. All that heaven allows. You can hear the sneer in it. 
and you know it's kind of like not very blooming much basically (laughs) (laughs) i just held back my language there Uh, you know it's kind of like it's if if you the scene with the television screen is with, with the tv is weird yeah the way it's shot, the way it's set, the way the the dark joke. What it says, yeah. The punchline. It's it, it's weird. It's so bleak. It's weird. Um, the scenes with Rock Hudson and Jane Wyman in the big house, that sort of shack that he's built. The way they're shot, the way they're staged. The fact that they're so, they manage to have this amazing chemistry that lets you know that they are in love with each other but there's always these huge barriers between them and space between them. Yeah. Um, again, that thing you said about how he uses screens, how much of the time she spends looking out of the window when she's trying to say something to him yeah. she can't. The look of sheer stricken panic on his face when she tells him she's breaking up with him yeah. is not what you see from men no. in no. 50s movies. And, and I think there is a real sexual tension between them. There is. Which I guess just goes to 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 kind of show his his acting chops. There is a real sexual tension, it, uh, as opposed to the kind agree. of the sexlessness of of the the rest of um, our oh, life. And Agnes Moorhead's yeah. character, um, and I've forgotten Sarah, her name. Sarah, I think it is. Sarah, 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 Sarah. Mm. Um, I think again, Agnes Moorhead's such a fantastic actress. Um, part of Orson Welles's kind of repertory company. Mm. You know, she's kind of a legendary character actress. And she brings a dark. She brings a darkness, even though she's not playing the darkest character mm. in the world. In this, she's basically, you know, the the main character's best mate. Yeah, that's she's, her job here. She's she's living the life that her children believe Carrie should be living, yeah. isn't it? She's yeah. the, she's the Carrie proxy who's doing everything as uh, she should. And it's one of the the big moments in the film, in terms of your emotional investment in the film, where at first. Even though she's her friend, she's pretty much going down the route of everybody else is right. Your, you know, your kids are right. Um, my horrible friends are right. You should conform. And when she sees enough to realise, no, I, I'm so wrong here. You should do what you like. You should do what you feel. Mm. It's a big moment in yeah. the film about, you know, women not colluding with this. Yeah, yeah. Get out, get out yourself. Leave me behind, but get out yourself while you still have time. Yeah, and I, I think these are quite weird things to 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 put in a very glossy, yeah, very mainstream, very much designed to be a box office hit, nineteen fifties film. Yeah, I think the other thing that's weird is just quite how bohemian Ron and his yeah. group are. How far they go with that? How far they go with that? So uh, the the. The, the friends who are having the party, the, the, the wife of that friend, you know, is, is talking to Carrie and, and just says, you know, they're really into Thoreau's Walden. This is a book mm. they read, which is all about kind of living in the land. I haven't read it myself, but yeah. it's all about nature and being at yeah. one with nature and turning your back on, on things. And that Ron and his friend met in Korea. Right. And okay. it was only when that. they when they came back from Korea that Ron started to kind of question yes, the values. Yes, yes, so, of yeah, course, yeah, yeah. he's been sent abroad to instill American values yeah. elsewhere. Yeah. And this is when he starts to question them for himself. And so he comes back different. He comes back changed. Different. Yeah. And he's rejecting those values that he has been taught and trained to inculcate in in, 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 in a country the other side of the world. Yeah. If, if, if this film had been made 15 years later, Chris Christopherson is the Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, it's, you know, he's the hunky 
hippie with the the beard and whatever who symbolizes freedom and and you know and bohemian values yeah and the fact that it's straight laced short haired muscle bound um you know lightweight supposedly yeah rock hudson that is embodying that and talking about alternative novels yeah and it, alternative alternative lifestyles. You know, he's pretty lifestyle. much living off the grid. That's he what is. he's doing. Yeah, That's he's, he's doing. dropped out. And I, I'm struck again by all the films that we mentioned, particularly the ones from the 40s and 50s, how modern they are. That's yeah. what makes them yeah. weird for us, isn't yeah. it? We watch, yeah. we watch a lot of films from that period. Yeah. And a lot of them are, I, I, I still enjoy them, but a lot of them are not weird. They're very, they're formulaic. You know what's going to happen at the end when you watch the start. The, the, all the directors that we're interested in, they just do it slightly wrong and they're yeah. predicting what is to come. Uh, yeah, um, prophetic. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's really interesting. And the, it, ge- the genius maybe lies, <laughs> uh, of the films lies in the tension between what the, Hayes, uh, what the production code allows them to do and what they're trying to get through. And it's, it's that tension. You know, it, it, of course the 70s was a massive decade and, and of course it produced some fantastic films, but that curdled so quickly because everybody was allowed to do what they were allowed yeah. to do. And guess what? They started making hymns to machismo. Yeah. That's yeah. what they, that's what they, left to learn devices, a bunch yeah. of male directors started making a load of films about how great it was to have a cock. Um, there was nothing subversive after the first couple of years. What is sexier than sexual tension? Yeah. And when you can just have sex, there is no sexual tension. Yes. But the tension between Carrie and Ron, you, it's palpable. You can feel it. And faced with either a TV or an old guy, why wouldn't she choose life? She's choosing yeah, life. Choose life. Yeah. So, how many monochrome TV sets, mm-hmm. um, Lindsay, are you giving um, all that heaven allows for quality and for weird? Uh, I think it's. I'm. I'm I, I know I'm, I'm very predictable. I give everything nine or ten for quality because I love every mm. one of the films that we talk about. Yeah. I'm going to give all that heaven allows ten for quality and I'm going to give it. Eight for weird. I'm going to give it nine for quality and seven for weird. And um, it, it's, um, and I, I only say that because, you know, if I slam it up against Shot Corridor or Manchurian yeah. Candidate, okay, it ain't as weird as them. Yeah. Or The Wicker Man, you know, no, it ain't as weird as them. But it's so brave. Yeah. And so clever. And the values it espouses are the right ones. They're modernist values. Yeah. In, in a time when... Well, we know we know more and more about what fifties Hollywood was. Yeah, absolutely. What twenty what uh, twenty twenty first century Hollywood is as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. So go out, watch this film if you haven't seen it. It will be all the company you'll ever need. <laughs> Till next time. Till next time. What's wrong with this picture? Is brought to you by Lindsay McCulloch and Gary Mulholland, and is recorded by Russ Keffert at Audio Egg. Music composed and performed by Russ Kelly.